can be chaotic, it can be problematic, demanding, challenging, stressful, but it gives you these moments that just stay with you forever. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Pete Olushaga and this is 80% Mental, a genuinely award-winning podcast all about the psychology of sport and performance. I'm a psychologist and a lecturer in the UK and with this podcast I'm trying to find out as much as I can about the mental aspects of performance. In the first episode of this brand new series, I spoke to endurance athlete Greg Hewitt about his epic Marathon de Saab adventure and got some fantastic insights from sports psychologist and triathlete Dr. Amy Whitehead too in an episode about the psychology of endurance. If you haven't listened, you can listen and subscribe at 80percentmental.com or you can follow the podcast on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80percentmental. And you'll find links to that episode and everything from this series and series one and two as well. Okay, so look, I'm really excited for this episode because this is my own area of research and my own area of, of practice. And today I'm going to explore the psychology of the coach. There's some fairly obvious differences in the way that coaches and athletes perform, but there are some similarities as well. Coaches have to be able to perform under pressure. They have to be able to develop and execute strategy for training and competition. They have to uh, deal with the media at higher levels, manage emotions, communicate with confidence. These are all performance skills. So it's fair to consider coaches as performers in their own right. And we know that there's a pretty big mental component to sport performance. You might even say it's 80% mental. But enough of that. Let's get on with it. I'm really pleased to be able to welcome to the podcast a couple of expert special guests who are going to help me discuss the psychology of the coach. So it makes sense to have a coach here for this discussion. And I'm really pleased to welcome the lead assistant coach for the Great Britain Senior Men's National Team, and the head coach of the Newcastle Eagles, which if you don't know, is one of the most successful franchises in British basketball. Mark Stutel, welcome to 80% Mental. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me. Um, and the, the head coach with the Eagles, that's a relatively new appointment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going into my first season, you know, organisation that I've been a, been a part of for a long time. Um, but yeah, really, really excited, enthused to, to get into the... To get into the the business of the season, you know, enjoying the planning side of it at the minute, but yeah, going into to, to an exciting first season. Cool. And when do you, it's only a few weeks, isn't it, until you get started, really? A couple of weeks, yeah. We're, we're pretty much there with roster completion in the next couple of weeks. And then we get straight into it from the from the 1st of September. A little bit of a crossover with Eurobasket and the, um, you, you know, the national team commitments for, for a few days there. Um, but then, yeah, I think our first game is the 30th of September, I think. 7.30 at home on a Friday night against Manchester Giants, I think. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's ready to go. Awesome. Well, we'll get into uh, the, the psychology of coaching and some of your experience and expertise uh, as we get on with the, uh, with the episode. Um, but I'm also really pleased to have on the show Kristen Diefenbach, who's a member of faculty at West Virginia University. And I've wanted her to come on the podcast for a long time. It's just a question of waiting for the right episode. And Kristen knows more about the psychology of coaching than your average bear. 
which is kind of ironic because you have bears probably outside the we window. We have a lot right? of bears. Yes. Well, thank you for welcoming me. And yeah, we do have a lot of black bears. We had several this year that uh, spent some time in our front yard. <laughs> so where exactly in the world are you then, Kristen? I am in West Virginia, which has the tagline of being wild and wonderful, um, hence the bears. <laughs> and I'm right in thinking that you've just got back from Sweden as well, yeah? Yeah, we were over in Sweden um, looking at some youth ice hockey programs and, and how some of the things were being done there with the coach education and coach development. Hmm. Awesome. Well, again, thank you both for agreeing to come on the podcast. I know you've both been traveling very, very recently. So, um, yeah, really appreciate you taking the time to, to come and talk to me today. Um so yeah, let's get started with it then. I want to start with you, Mark, because um, I, I competed against you as an athlete, uh, as a player, and we had some some battles on the court. Uh, I didn't guard you because you're like a foot and a half taller than me, but you know, whatever. Um, but when when did you when did you decide that coaching was for you? Was it something that you kind of always had in the back of your mind, or did you just sort of fall into it? Tell, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think it probably links in with the, the prelude to that question about battles on the court. I think you're being kind there, Pete. I think you probably run rings <laughs> around me. And I was always somebody who was, was was maybe more vocal and was maybe thinking the game more than I was maybe playing the game. You go back 10, 15 years in time, I, I don't think I would have acknowledged that. I think in my head I thought I was <laughs> playing the game at the right level. But, um, but yeah, I think there's been – I've had I've, I've been asked that question a few times and – I think the moment that I'm naturally kind of drawn back to is um, I was playing basketball at the National Basketball Academy, you know, around about the ages of 16 to 18. And at the time, it was something where I, I got a couple of opportunities to coach the youth, you know, general like summer camp type things. And at that point, I was 100% set on being a player at whatever level I could play at the highest mm -hmm. level. And, you know, I, I, I look back on it and, I definitely had some areas for improvement, but I was, I'd class myself as probably, you know, one of the most hardworking and committed and dedicated. And, um, I was really driven by basketball and, and, um, you know, fully immersed myself in the sport. Um, you know, training twice a day, I would sneak out at times. I'm not, I'm not advocating this, but I would miss class at times to go and train <laughs> extra. You know, I just, I was an absolute gym rat and I loved it. And I, um, I just I got a couple of opportunities from from my current coach and my former coach in the holidays to do kids camps and I just mm. loved it. I just loved being in basketball and seeing like smiling faces on young people and at that point it was a way to to make a little bit of pocket money but do something that I loved and still you know didn't take away from me playing. And then as I continue to get older and in my head I'm like yeah I'm still a player I'm a player but then I'm looking around at my peers that I played with the under 18s that were playing at a higher level than me. And I'm going, well, am I a player um, or, 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 you know, am I maybe on a, on a different path here? Um, studying, coaching at every, and, and again, I found myself at college, at university, not because I wanted to study, because I wanted to play basketball. And you look back on it now, I kind of fell into some of those, um, fell into, fell into probably the education path because of playing. But if I didn't do the education route, I wouldn't have ended up coaching. I, I know that for a fact. And mm -hmm. um, essentially, w when I graduated, I got the opportunity to, um, I, was, I was playing for like a, a second division team over here in the UK. Um, and I was also coaching an academy. And at that point, I, I got a chance to then coach a national league, a junior team. And it was either something has to give here. You, you know, I'm, I'm out the house at seven in the morning and back in at 11 at night. And I'm just, I'm coaching, I'm doing, I'm playing, I'm so something I had to give. And 
but the opportunity the opportunity was too good to turn down so I kind of threw myself into coaching at a younger age of 24 you know I'd done a little bit before then kind yeah. of special type coaching um and, and and really kind of haven't looked back then you know I've, I've I've loved it Pete I love I love what it brings I love you know working with people I love development I love relationships I love the challenges at times uh, you ask me in the moment some of the challenges maybe I don't but I love what you learn and what you gain from them um mm. so yeah definitely something that I kind of probably fell into because of my love of playing the sport Cool. Well, I, I can't wait to pick your brains a little bit more about some of those challenges that you that, that you just mentioned. Um, to say that you did sort of fall into it like that, and again, you know, you mentioned quite a young age. You, you've been pretty successful uh, in, in in what you've achieved in coaching. Do you do you remember coaching like your, your first big game? See, I, I guess, like I as a head coach, I guess. Great question because I think you go back at you know the lens that you look at it through at those moment in time. The first time you experience those feelings, every game is a big game. I, I remember, you know, so I coached the under 16s national league team, you know, and, and when you look back on it now, that's, as you know, from the area, Pete, I do believe you're a Gateshead, <laughs> yeah. you're a Gateshead boy. Um, so, but it was in the Northeast region of England. So, you know, not a massive region and it was the, it was to get into the playoffs. It was in the Northeast playoffs, but that's probably the one that sticks to mind going, we've got to win this game. And I look back on it now and think, you know, some of the games that I've coached, I probably still have some of those similar feelings, but at that moment in time, at that snapshot in time, that was absolutely, you know, some of those emotions around, I guess, nervousness, excitedness, a little bit of anxiety, um, maybe some of those good feelings that I think probably keep you a, a alert if you can harness and control them as a coach, mm. where they don't become too too crippling, I think. So, yeah, I, I absolutely have felt that, whether I've coached an under-16s regional game or the national team, you know, with a game that we needed to win to qualify for Eurobasket against France, the six-ranked team in the world. You know, I think I've definitely felt some of those similar emotions, just at whatever whatever point of the whatever point of the journey. I think. Yeah, and Kristen, I want to I want to bring you in here as well because Mark mentioned um, quite a few. I guess you call them psych skills. There, you know, the sort of managing the emotions of the challenge, and you know, from from your perspective, what what do you see? And your experience as a psychologist and a researcher in coaching, what do you see as kind of the the key psych skills or techniques? We'll focus on some of the mental skills for a moment that coaches should be aware of, um, that coaches should have that are, that are important for their work. Yeah, I think that's such a great question, and I think I'm going to start off by going a little sideways and coming back because I think Mark mentioned some some really great conversations about the within sport transition he made of moving from being an athlete and a performer in this space to becoming a coach and a performer. And that within sport transition, that in and of itself requires some really dedicated and specific expansion of ideas and change of the skill set. While some things that we bring from our athletic days really serve us well when we move over to the coaching space, there's some other things that we have to expand and, and change on. Um, and I get really excited, you know, sort of hearing those stories and talking about that. Um, and I think that becomes really important, that recognition of what am I doing and how is it different and, and what's the skill set that I need to bring here. And that's something I would love to explore a little more with Mark here. Um, and then that recognition of, of what is it going to take to be a performer in this really different context, even though it's still sport and even though there's still a competition going on, we have that recognition of, am I coaching children, in which case my job is a teacher and I'm performing more in that realm? 
or if I'm up in the higher levels, which is sounds like as Mark's career progressed, he really got into, you're starting to perform on this stage where outcome really matters. Uh, you know, the youth sport, everybody thinks it matters, but the outcome that matters is not what is on the scoreboard. You get into those higher levels and that ability to have um, that invested self in the, in the moment of this is not just what the athletes are doing. This is about what am I doing? How am I learning and growing? That's a huge piece of this professional skill set from a, from a psychological perspective and the ability to really separate out that, you know, that the emotions, you, you can be really emotional and be really highly charged, but you can't let that drive you because you have to make rational and good decisions. And so that sense of emotional control is a really important one that sometimes athletes get away with a little more than a coach really can when they get into that space of having to direct, you know, 11, 2, 10, 1, however many um, athletes they're in charge of in that particular setting. And so I think to, to me, that becomes a really important piece that I work with a lot of new coaches on is the transition and then the emotional regulation of calm under pressure, calm under stress, calm under challenge, rational decision-making becomes really important. Yeah, that, you know, Chris will probably see I'm smiling away here because that emotional intelligence and emotional balance is something that I've absolutely, um, I've probably learned the hard way, to, you know, I think, and, and like most of us, you know, we learned, we, we, we probably learn from really impactful experiences be it positive or negative and and as Kristen had said maybe outcome based and I think <clears throat> excuse me you know a lot of my time where I would say in my formative years development I was working with generally 16 to 19 year olds in a, in a performance-based setting and for me that was a really I guess a really effective environment for me to 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 get repetitions on the floor as a coach and think about technical tactical basketball but also maturation physically and emotionally of the young people and I look back at you know generally I, I, I probably bumped into some, some former players of mine not too long ago that we had that two three years with of me pushing them and challenging them daily and a lot of them you know a lot of the feedback is oh I really appreciate you know the hard work I've got a lot of discipline in my life now I look back on it and think if I was the coach I am now I hope that I would still have the same outcome, but I would do it in a different way where I would be maybe less of a shouter, less of a authoritarian. <laughs> and look, that's who I am. I'm never going to turn that off because that's who I am as a coach. Maybe that's why Pete's laughing because that's who I am as a coach. You know, I, that's but, who you were as a player as well. Exactly. <laughs> maybe going back to that coach on the floor as opposed to the, you know, the, the, the player standpoint. But I just think in terms of that, that kind of development that I've been through and I have been, you know, one of the things I am proud of and I probably, I, I struggle with kind of saying it a lot in terms of my growth and my development is I, I am really reflective and, and I am a deep thinker in terms of relationships and people and the impact of, I guess, learning, you know, it, the, the, the context of learning. And again, whether it's a 16 to 19 year old or, or, or a professional. And again, as Kristen said, that's why I'm, you know, I burst into life here because my thoughts are going as, as we're getting some of that dialogue about it being outcome specific and at times, you know, getting emotional balance where at times it, it, with seniors, sometimes you have to have selective hearing or selective scanning because you're dealing with different types of people than you are than you're working with the youth. And, and, there's all, and ultimately, the only people that, um, I guess, validate your decision as a coach is you and the outcome. 
Well, I, I try to say, regardless what level I'm working at, if I would go back and do it again, whether I intervene as a coach or I don't intervene as a coach, and I try and take the outcome out of it, I think, and I'm talking about the scoreboard again, I think that that's probably the thing that, that I, I try to learn the most. So, yeah, I mean, word for word, what Kristen had articulated a lot better than I have really, really resonated with me. Yeah. Pete, can I jump in there a minute? Because I think Mark yeah, just course, yeah. highlighted something that's just so crucial. This idea of, and this goes back to some work you and I have done with with self, um, self-awareness and reflection. And that word gets thrown around a lot. You know, people, oh, yeah, I'm reflecting. And often what they're reflecting on is what someone else has done or on a situation. And you're talking about this much deeper level of self-reflection that is a skill that has to be practiced and has to be done where we're really thinking through sort of the what happened, what did I do, what were the different outcomes, and and sort of how am I going to use what I've learned now again the next time, right? This growth reflection cycle, as opposed to just rehashing, rethinking, restressing about stuff, but doing it with a purpose. And this is what I hear from most really good elite coaches that I know when I, you know, you start talking to them and interviewing them or working with them in different contexts. They are some of the most skilled people I have ever met at being able to really reflect from a growth perspective and from a self-awareness growth perspective that I have met, you know, in any of the areas that I've worked in. It's, it's just, it's a, such a powerful skill um, that I think we undervalue and underconsider a lot. Uh, Kristen, if I and, and if I could just follow up, so I, I absolutely agree with you. And and I'm there's probably two parts that have got to that. The first one is the more that I do that, the more I become fascinated with that reflection from my lens, but also from the twelve athletes that I'm working with in a team sport, because some of the times my reflections don't align with something that I have or have not noticed from player A, B, C, and so on. So then I I start getting myself into this you know do my reflections align with the team and if they do or don't how can we do that which also links into my second point i think for development and growth there becomes a lot of vulnerability with reflection you, you know and being able to to own when you've made a mistake and i naturally say that first because coaches at any level I know for a fact i learn more from the mistakes i've made than from you know some of the positive things that i've done so I think it's that you make that mistake again, you don't want to have those feelings, those emotions. And I think that vulnerability, if you can own that with your team in the right way, hopefully promotes the same level of reflection within athletes, which I think is different. And it's a skill that continues, you know, that needs to be needs to be taught. I think that brings growth and togetherness and development, and it brings a synergy between coaching and, and athletes. And I just think that that's, as you're talking that, that's so pertinent with with, with the things that I believe in. Um, I guess that I've learned throughout my journey so far. I would love to know how have you prioritized that and how have you worked on the skills of that? Because one of the things we hear a lot from young coaches is that they have trouble finding the time and prioritizing doing that. And they're not rewarded in the system for doing it or spending time on it because it's not something that we typically see as, you know, you're not writing a plan, you're not doing, you know, drill work. How, how has that grown because you've gotten to a very high level so it's been you know something you've been doing i would say the most impactful way that i've done it is via what i would class as informal and you know when you look at like formal and informal learning and different strategies and what i mean by there is consistent use of questioning and that can be before practice 
I, I do it a lot in practice. I do it post-practice. I know that some of my athletes would be more communicative in a text message, which I don't particularly like, but I'm understanding the way the way that mm-hmm. athletes, you know, particularly younger athletes now are doing, some some of it in person. And I think the biggest thing that I learned from this was I, I um, my first year coaching a senior men's national league team, we were in the third division of British basketball. And we had, from the outside, looking at a really successful year. We won the league, we won the playoffs, we got promoted. And I had a really, really talented um European player who'd been at a really high level system and at the end of the year I did what I'd learned to do on coaching courses and that was ask your players for some feedback and the player that I mean I still have a relationship with to this day he made a really relevant point on my use of humour now I know that you've both got straight faces there because you can tell that I'm not funny um, but he felt at times in the sessions maybe it's an English thing because I had a predominantly English group um, that my use of humour made the intensity in the sessions dip and he really disliked it. Now, I had a year with this player and still have a positive relationship, but I've went, there's nothing that I can do on that now because he said that to me as a coach at the end mm-hmm. of the season. So why why are we not having this dialogue or this method or medium, whether it's a formal way of feedbacks, feedback forms, Microsoft form, you know, back then it was pen and paper, obviously, or, or is it more so... The, the regular checks of checks of learning, checks of understanding, checks of reflection. And I think as I've got on, you know, I've coached in different environments where the national team, we get together for seven, eight days and we've got two games. So, so it's really accelerated. And I think in, in that environment, for me, it's a lot of investing time into the person around the hotel, the practice, pre-practice, doing it in the group setting, video analysis, team meetings, so I, I, that's probably the way that I find more effective. If I've got a group over the course of a season, I'll try and mix in formal and informal. And what I mean by formal is maybe a you know a written questionnaire and, and trying to you know actually look. Can you do some reflection here and can you bring it to me and can we discuss it and actually try and get beyond surface level and get into some depth about it. So the, the the reflective practice is important, and you know, as as you've both mentioned, it's beyond this this idea of reflecting on just what happened. And I think you know, coaches are great at reflecting on what happened. That perhaps an area for development is that really deep reflection. You know, what does this experience really mean? And there's some kind of fundamental reflective questions that coaches should perhaps ask themselves at fairly regular intervals you know my research is around stress and burnout and kind of how coaches manage some of that stuff and again you know like what what are the fundamental reflective questions that allow coaches to develop in those ways you know what are my stresses what are the things that drain me what tires me out emotionally what am i like when i'm tired what am i like when i'm energetic so this kind of real deep level of reflection is something that I think is hugely important. And it's great to hear you both kind of talking about that. But Kristen, from, from your point of view as a psychologist here, you know, what are some of the other ways, aside from reflection, that coaches can really incorporate psychology into their roles? And, you know, Mark, you just talked about the communicating with athletes, um, but maybe this is kind of using psychological principles for coaches, like using psych for themselves. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, from your point of view, Kristen, what, what do you think are some of the ways that coaches can, can utilize psychology more effectively? Yeah. And uh, I think it's such, again, 
such an important conversation and keeping in mind that I don't come from a clinical psych perspective, I'm coming from an educational psych. So in the US, a little bit different in the way that we sort of view those things. Mm. And I think this idea, and I've heard Mark say it as he's been talking, really embracing this interpersonal and intrapersonal relationships that you're building. So you have the relationship with yourself and how you're thinking and you're feeling and understanding your values. But then also this idea of the relationships you're building with your athletes and looking at how you're building those relationships, how you're considering this other person and starting to view some of those psychological skills of, of really thinking about how you want to develop those relationships, how you build those relationships that is that there's something, I'm sorry, I'm really stuck on something you said a few minutes ago that I just keep spinning in my head around this need to be vulnerable and this ability to be vulnerable with other people so that moving away from that authoritarian approach you talked about. So, you know, back in the early days of your career to moving towards this place where you're in a position where you can open up and be vulnerable with your athletes in a sense that it's not, um, had, you know, panic, hey, I don't know what I'm doing, but more of a, hey, I'm a genuine, authentic person who's experiencing this. How do we share and grow together? And from, from a perspective there, I think that is incredibly valuable in building that relationship. And often people, especially my novice coaches or my newer coaches, they mistake that approach of being authoritarian with being in charge. And they think that in order to be in charge, they have to put on this shell and this armor and be very distant. Whereas some of the best relationships and some of the best efforts out of people come when you really build that deep trust, that deep relationship. And we can look away from sport and look into the military to see some of those types of relationships that get built and the empowering, the importance of that, you know, that, that really deep bond that you're going to build. And in order to build a deep bond, you have to be just as invested. Otherwise you're an outsider to that. And I am hearing all of those little pieces that get, you know, Again, make the conversation so exciting of how do we help empower the next generation of coaches to not learn it 30 years into their career, but learn it earlier. And that's where I really, that the work that I do is, is one of my main goals is you know, how do we make this the end of your early career? Because you got to go through some of it, but not the you know final phases of your career that you get there. Um, but I'm really hearing a lot of, of some of that in, in what Mark is discussing. And I think from a psych perspective, those are some of the, those interpersonal relationship skills are some of the big pieces that I actually spend most of my time talking to coaches about. And I am coming from a background where I've got exercise science, uh, a pretty strong exercise science background. And nine times out of 10, that's what we start talking about because that's where they think they want. And then we spend almost all of our time talking about managing interpersonal relationship skills, which means we come back to how do they manage it in order to better interconnect with other people. Cause they always talk about other people first. And then we come back to, well, how are you doing things? How are you acting? How are you responding? And we always come there. It's where it always goes. Uh, even if they don't think it's gonna. And I, I, to follow up on that, you know, Mark, you, you talked about authenticity and you talked about some of your own principles that you, you sort of stand by in terms of the way that you communicate with, with athletes. Obviously you, you have an assistant coach role, uh, with GB, but you also have a head coach role and presumably you have staff as well. That you work with other coaches. What, what would you say your principles of communication that you, you stand by when you also have to deal with other coaches saying things in different ways and other messages coming from other people? What would you say are your kind of key principles? Yeah. 
I'm not just saying it. It's it's a really relevant question, and we could spend for me <laughs> so long on it. And I'm, because it's something, and this is what I love about coaching, because that's a question now, and we'll discuss it for 10, 15 minutes. The reality is we go into practice and there's probably a million different approaches to it where you've got to try and have these probably overarching principles, not just communication, where people understand this is what we need to do to operate, to be successful as a group. So I, I will, I'll answer the question specifically. I think for, for me, you've said the word, and, and I know we were going to, you know, you'd sent out about coaching philosophy and look, I've read loads. I've actually read a lot of American literature. literature. I mean, I know it's a bit of a dated book now, but Rainer Martin, Successful Coaching on Coaching Philosophy. And I think look to um, Tara van der Veer's philosophy and all these other ideas. Uh, and I started to, you know, really write down what is my philosophy, my philosophy, my philosophy, and I actually brought it back to less is more. And without the, sh because I want to be able to hold myself accountable to what I believe in. And although mm -hmm. if I start having this big, I don't know, you know, really articulate document that sounds real for me, I bring it back to the word that you've just said, Pete, which is authenticity, honesty, and empathy. They're the three principles that no matter what I'm coaching, I try and bring it back to. And, you know, I always probably then spend some time on the honesty one because, particularly as you start working with, professionals or, or, or pros the honesty one becomes challenging at times because some you know ultimately it's, it's people's careers and livelihood but you have to be really honest and sometimes that might be delivering news that where the other person doesn't want to hear that and those three principles are what I believe in when I'm working with with coaches but I also think the question is really relevant because a lot of I've, I've been a head coach since I was 24 years old that's that's all I've known so I've only ever known my voice and, 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 and then I, I get put into a, a role where I'm an assistant coach. The skill set is completely different. Now, whether, okay, the application of it, maybe the skills are not different, but the applications may be different because you have to know how to add value, how to, uh, in the group setting, to reinforce and echo what the head coach wants in a very fast-paced and dynamic environment. You have to then make sure that, You've got the trust of the players. You've got the trust of the head coach. Sometimes you are conduit between those two because, and there's some challenges there. But I think if you can go back to those three principles, uh, and that's, at, you know, I've, I've been the head coach of the under 20 national team, working with two assistant coaches and players. I've been the acting head coach for the national team for eight games when the head coach wasn't able to be there. I've then just reverted back to my role as lead assistant coach when the head coach has come back in. So there's all of these dynamics and, interpersonal relationships and different and, and I think ultimately if you can stick with and for me that's in coaching but specifically with communication to being honest having empathy and for me empathy uh, I say it a lot I know it's like an old adage but unless you've walked a mile in someone's shoes it's easy to pass judgment or pass opinion but I think you have to try and see it from different people's lens at times and sometimes even if you see it and you can acknowledge it it, it's right. I hear your feelings. I hear your thoughts. And I do understand what you're saying. But for the team, we need you to do this. So right now I've heard you. you please, you know, but I need to, you know, I'm still going to go with the way that I need us to go to on this. And I think that goes back to that authenticity word as well. And just, you know, sticking with what you, what you believe in. So I'd say for me that they're, they're, they're probably the three principles communicating part of a um, multidisciplinary team, because we're talking about coaches here. The, the the more experience I've gathered, 
I now value the impact of that with in England we call them support staff I stopped calling them support staff because they're not support staff they are performance staff you know mm-hmm. like in terms of sports psychology sports nutrition sports physiotherapy strength and conditioning that they're not support staff they are performance staff and I think having that ability to foster those relationships with effective communication with everybody it is the majority of how you can be effective as a coach you know Peter it was there's so many elements and there's such richness here. We go back to that, you know, core site question that you asked a minute ago in, in what Mark's talking about. And we're talking about the the ability as a professional. And this is where we really undervalue coaches and the preparation and the support for coaches. And we often go, oh, you played, therefore you can coach. And we just assume that, that the player skills are going to transfer over when in actuality, it's context specific, whether you're dealing with developmental under 18 kids, uh, developmental underage kid, teen kids that are going performance route or the senior players who are going performance route. But we're talking skills around social psychology and understanding, um, you know, human behavior and how others act and react and do things so that you can manage those things as the coach. We're talking about organizational psychology and looking at the performance of a group and understanding how groups behave in those settings. And then we're talking about looking at our own, you know, the developmental psych for working with younger kids or even teenagers. And how, you know, what do we meet their needs and their development so that we don't lose them out of the performance setting and they can keep going. And then all the cognitive psych stuff around, you know, decision making and problem solving and all of those things. And then, the you know, the core, the core elements of, of, you know, thinking about how the emotional regulation and some of the things we were talking about earlier. And when you're a coach and we put these folks in this very high pressure situation where their jobs have a pretty big impact as they control a team and they work and they they're responsible for it and yet we often just sort of assume that they'll figure it all out as they go and I find that to be a really really odd cultural things globally there's a so if we just look at the huge value in kids and getting kids involved in sport and yet we rely on volunteer coaches and then there's major money in our performance sports and we still rely on experience to teach it and somebody else to pass on a little bit of wisdom in one little vein of, you know, I worked with this coach and got information from him and it blows me away the amount of money that we'll spend on equipment, but not the person at the center with all of these elements. I just listening to you talk, I'm like, you know, you, you just, you've learned, got so many things that you've learned organically that it kills me. We don't give more support to that. I'm sorry, Pete, just to jump at once. No, go, go, go ahead. You know I can talk, so I blame you for being the <laughs> I do apologize. But, Chris, again, that part for me is so relevant because it, so it, I did, I've done a, I did a three-year European coach development course that, that we run over here, that FIBA, the, the World Governing Body, run. And, and it was like 67 coaches from all around Europe, and you do three summers. And... You know, you've got the most elite coaches in Europe, uh, Pablo Lasso, Real Madrid head coach, Janez Dravic, who coached uh, the Yugoslavia team, um, Tony Kukoc. Uh, so all of these all of these elite level coaches. And in Spain, the coaches at Real Madrid, Barcelona, Estudiantes, the, the, the head coaches go back and do an under 12 session every week. And, and that's because exactly what you've just said. And we don't do it here. And when we and I'm talking about in the UK, maybe that's my lens now. But what we also do is exactly what you say: grassroots volunteers. You're a volunteer coach. 
and it's the pro uh, and, and uh, let's say 80% of those are engaged in it because they've got a child involved and they might see that pathway go through and then when we do offer coach development they might observe a coach and they'll go and see a technical drill and it gets lost in the application as to where they are with that young person technically tactically emotionally where they are in the season where they are where and, and then it's well I've seen this drill and this is the and it's not the drill you know I've seen it before where we're doing it I don't care what the drill is I care does a can they understand why they're doing that drill and how to apply it and mm. how to regulate uh, tactically for basketball but emotionally uh, and they're the things that I I know that I did do organically because I had two very authoritarian coaches who were just the most amazing people and I respect them to this day and I would run through a brick wall for them but that, that I was from I was coached by do this and do it harder than anybody else and you'll be successful so for my first six eight years of coaching that I, I just doubled down on that I was a hundred percent on and you could see those traits in the teams that I worked with I'd like to think that I've still got the positive elements of that which there are some but I've really tried hard to develop the other areas to see whether, you know, we can, we can grow with it. So again, as you're talking there, I'm just, it, it, it's really resonating with, 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 I guess, my learning and my journey, I suppose. Obviously listening to Mark, you're a coach who's invested deeply in your own learning. You know, you've absorbed some of the psychology literature out there. You've gone and you, you've sorted out. Um, Kristen, in your experience as a psychologist, how much do coaches really invest in learning about psychology and how to apply it to their own coaching? That's a really interesting question. I think it, I hate to make you know huge generalizations because there are people who come in in a lot of different ways. But something that, that Mark alluded to in the last session where folks get very caught up in the drill, and that's usually my most novice coaches or my folks that are coming in from the most, um, their own playing experience, but they haven't really thought through what it means to be a coach and what it looks like. And they often don't bring in a lot of interest or investment into the person and the psychology side of things, let alone their own psychology. They very much are still, if I have a practice plan and I'm running drills, I'm running practice. Boom. It's done. It's easy. And what I've always found to be fascinating, and I think where I gravitated towards a certain group of coaches, is the more invested they are and the more time they spend, the more they tend to get this very introspective lens of, it's bigger than the practice plan. It's more than it. Practice isn't something I do to my athletes. I do it with them. And if I'm doing it with them, then I have to understand them and know them and think about all these elements. And that shift of mindset of I'm the boss and I'm the authoritarian to I may be leading, but I have to have invested followers to, to make this work is, is very similar to what you see in sort of the shift in the classroom movement that we've seen in the last 20 years. It's what we're seeing works better for performance. And so my stronger coaches are interested um, and often more so than the skills and drills because the skills and drills are what? The rest of it's the how. And that investment in how, uh, that tends to be the, the big deciding factor between a coach and a really good coach. I mean, certainly you have some that get through on the old authoritarian model but I'm seeing that less and less, especially in the U.S. And I think from what I've talked to the folks in the U.K. in those areas where the athlete mindset is changing as well. And it's not just I'm going to listen to an authoritarian and just follow. That tends not to fly as well anymore as well. 
It's not what people are used to. Pete, Pete let, let, let me ask, and Kristen, after yeah. Pete, could you touched on it there, so I would be interested to hear you follow up from the US standpoint. But Pete, on the, on the, the importance of psychology, exactly what we're talking about here for coaches, how do you feel, and it is generalising, so I do appreciate that it's with a pinch of salt across all sports and governing bodies, but how do you feel in the UK that the, the most common form of coach education is awarding body organisations, level one, level two, level three, coaching qualifications? How do you feel in the UK we, we prioritise what we're talking about, the person and psychology? You know, what would your, your stance on that be, Pete? I mean, again, without wanting to generalize, and yeah. I'm, I'm sure you probably agree with what I'm about to say, is that we don't touch on any of that stuff until much, much later on in the coach's journey. So level one, I know for the basketball qualification, for example, level one, level two, it's all just about, well, here's how you do a warm up, here's how you do this drill, here's how you teach a layup. There is no mention of any of the psych skills or strategies that we've talked about. There's no um, uh, exploration of the mental aspects of performance. And there's not really that much on the key skill that you talked about right at the start, which was self-reflection, like the psych skills for the coaches themselves as well. So I, I think we've got a fair way to go, uh, when it comes to incorporating some of the, the, the more mental aspects of coaching into the, the developmental pathways that we've got in the UK. Great. Yeah. Kristen, how, how about the U S yeah. This is, this is one of those areas that people assume the U.S. has got stuff organized and just to be really mindful and make sure, yeah, don't laugh at that, Pete. Just to make sure people really understand the landscape, the U.S. certainly is a large country. We tend to do very well in medal counts often at the Olympics and some of the other places, but at the same time, per capita, we actually don't do that well, right? We fall down into the 30s and the 40s when we look per capita. And so while we've got size and volume, we don't have the organizational structure. Um, you know, look at just baseball alone, and there's seven different organizations, at least, in addition to our USA Baseball Olympic group. And then you got the NCA and then seven, eight other groups that run it on a national level. And then all these regional. So we don't have structure. So our system is as wild west of absolutely no coaching credentials all the way up through something like US soccer that has uh, very similar to what FIFA has implemented in the in the UK. But Across the board, what I would say is that the vast majority of coaching education type programs focus on knowledge. They say, oh, here's a drill, here's a warm up, here's a cool down. But we have absolutely nothing that talks about the skills that the coach needs to make it happen and then nothing to follow up and help them apply the knowledge and the skills and get any feedback on doing that. So it becomes much more of a tick box. And it's the coaches who are really interested that that go on, which is, again, such a sad statement with all the value we put on youth engagement and all the money we put into high performance engagement. I, again, find that to be just such a such a mind blow that that someone hasn't realized that you put the money here, the you know, the outcome would be pretty amazing. But we don't prioritize it because it's a little harder to assess. It's yeah. a little harder to, uh, you know, directly tie. It's a little bit of a leap of faith knowing that it's a longer term investment piece. And we're not so good on long term investment. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw that break in now because um, I think that bit actually fits better. With, I don't know why I'm telling you this. You don't care. Um, <laughs> well, it helps us know what you're doing. So Exactly. Okay. And I'm just going to switch tack a little bit. Okay. Okay. 
So this is 80% Mental and I'm here with basketball coach Mark Stutel and psychologist and coaching psychology expert Dr. Kristen Diefenbach. Um, we've been talking a lot about coach development um, but I want to switch tack a little bit and I'm, I'm really interested to get your opinions on this because this is my area of research, stress, burnout, well-being in high performance coaching. I'll come to you first Mark. Is coaching stressful? <laughs> This is, is this podcast going out with a watershed at 9 p.m.? <laughs> <laughs> Look, is it stressful? Y yes. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it can be chaotic. Uh, it can be problematic. It can be demanding, challenging, stressful. But it gives you these unadulterated, pure highs that I haven't you know, I, I experience in sport and these moments that just stay with you forever. So, um, yeah, I think ultimately there's the, 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 it can be very chaotic and then you're, sometimes you're trying to balance it off with being process orientated. So you try and get some balance there. It can be stressful. Sometimes you try and balance it out with being really cool, calm, delivered. So I think sometimes that the coach, I know I feel is that, you're the gatekeeper as such of all of these emotions and all of these challenges and you're trying to find a way to to navigate and to steer and to and to lead uh, a group of people that ultimately have a common goal but perception is everything and sometimes getting everybody to 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 see and believe and try and get everybody going straight forward can be where the the, the stresses and the and the challenges lie and that's without even discussing the human side of the coach, you know, a lot in terms of the coach is a person, the coach has a life, the coach feels the same as, as any other person, the coach has family, the coach has, you know, family, uh, I don't know, considerations, you want your family to be healthy, to be well, you want to invest time, you want to see them develop, grow. So, um, yes, uh, hearing that <laughs> back, I'm asking myself, why do I cut? No, not at all, I love it, you know, I love it, but, but, but yeah, absolutely, it's, it's stressful, yeah. I mean, what what would you say if if I because there's you know parental advisory warnings go out with this podcast, so don't worry about. It. <laughs> what would you what would you say like the the real major because you listed a whole bunch of things there, you know, mm -hmm. and it was really interesting here you talking about the coach as a person and that side of things as well. What would you say are the real major challenges of what you do? People management, uh, and I'm talking specifically to working with adults now and seniors and pros, I think I would mm. say it, it's, it's management. Um, I think you, you touched upon that, that word before, you know, the coach is a performer and I've, you know, Pete, you know, I, I, I read a lot and, um, you know, I loved, I loved reading a lot of your work when I was doing my master's no, thank you very performance much. coaching. I'm serious. You know, I, 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 you know, Kristen, I, I reached out to Pete and I said, I'm reading this and it's resonating with me. I'm doing it for my assignment, but it's, so, so you, you know that I do, whilst I am a coach, I do try and understand both sides of experience and, and, and academia and literature. Mm. But I think w when I hear that term, coach as a performer, I take offense to it because that makes me think then you're not being authentic and I want to be authentic who I am. But I understand what the term means. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I feel yeah. that if I'm a performer, I'm an imposter. I'm not who I am. But sometimes do, do you manipulate and that's another word that, that I don't think is a nice word, but 
I'm with coaches and I, I understand it. And that, that might be manipulating a situation to try and get a motivational message to your players, you know, because you're going through a, the course of a season and you're on game 35 out of game 55 and you're trying to get that extra bit of juice, that extra bit of added edge to try and mm. to try and help spur the team on. Now, I'm not saying you do that by being dishonest because I, I can't do that as a person. That's where that, and I've read into it, and I understand it, that coach as a performer at times, you know, do you manipulate a situation in practice where you've got two alphas who are competing and it might be detrimental to the team? So you manipulate a situation where they're, they're really isolated and it either gets some conflict and you can move on or it doesn't and it, and it kind of stews and festers. Hmm. So for, for me, though, that stressful thing, and it is contextual to the level that you're working at, um, you know, because I could be offensive that to want to say it could be stressful for a coach dealing with parents when you're working at under 18 level. And that's another thing that we don't do as a country. We don't support our coaches who are generally at the start of their journey in the UK when they're working with how to manage parents, how mm. to deal with parents. And that that, that can be a challenge. I'm not, not trying to be um, disrespectful to parents, but that, that can be something that's there. But for, for, for me, in my experience, I would say the most stressful part, I think, is 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 management, if, if I can use that term to encompass what I've tried to articulate. You know, Mark, it, you hit on something there that I think is a really important recognition that, you know, within this idea of sight, the same thing that sociopaths use, the great leaders use, the same thing that a counselor sitting in a counseling session uses are the same tactics that an interrogation uh, person will use in a law setting or, or a um, police setting. And these, it's kind of like this tool set that you can use for good or evil. It depends on your intent and what you're trying to do and where you're going. And I think for a lot of coaches that, well, it's a high performance profession. You have a lot on your back. There's a lot that you're responsible for, from the development of the players to, to the owners or the administrators, you know, to the fans, to everybody else. Um, and that puts you under the spotlight. And when I think of the performers, I always think of performers from that perspective, somebody who's under the gun and under the spotlight and who is expected to rise to the challenge every single time. You know, you had to hit the high note every time because the fans are watching kind of a perspective. And I always worry a lot about my high performance coaches from a stress perspective because they're often very isolated. You know, you can't very easily... You know, who do you go to when you have questions and how and it's often a tight inner circle that you tend to create because you can't go just anywhere. And it's that isolation coupled with that stress and the high demand of what you're doing that I often really worry about. And one of um, Pete and my friends uh, in the field, uh, Joran Kenta, that's a lot of what his work is really centering on is he's actually applied actively working with supporting those coaches. And I always have a fascinating, you know, whenever we sit down and talk, he and I have fascinating conversations around that how do you help support these professionals who can't just talk to anybody about what they're doing? I mean, they can to a certain degree. And like you said, you've got to be authentic and transparent and all these, but at the same time, you're also leading. And it just, uh, that pressure, I can hear it as you're talking about it. Those interpersonal relationships, just such a big piece of that stress load. So, so Kristen, just to, to sort of follow up on that then, you know, there's something in there around vulnerability, which mm -hmm. we mentioned earlier. Um, 
But what what are the challenges of, of really getting coaches to embrace this idea that psychology isn't just something that they can apply to their athletes? Like, you know, let's teach them goal setting. Let's you know, teach athletes how. Like, it, this stuff is useful for them, like their own emotional management, their own ability to manage that stress and, and perhaps, you know, take an active role in their own well-being. What are the challenges of getting coaches to buy into some of that stuff? The biggest thing, I think, and, and I've become, this is not where I started my career. It's not the early work that I did, even in my own you know, early coaching, it was always, oh, the coach this and the coach that. But I've become very much of a systems thinker and thinking about the systems because we can't turn to the coaches and say, you should value this and you should do all this and all these things are a part of what you do when the system itself doesn't value it, doesn't offer it, doesn't support it, doesn't apply, doesn't often give any resources to do and gain and grow these things. I mean, I'm thrilled to hear that Mark had the opportunity to do a course with other coaches and do these types of things. And those are growing and there's more of those things happening, but they tend to be far and few between. And as you said, with our junior coaches, we tend to wait until they get to a high level before we start to give them those opportunities. And so from an early part of your career, it's survive. It's get into the system and don't make anybody so mad that they don't replace you with somebody else and survive long enough so you can get to the place where you get the opportunities to really grow and blossom and do some of these great things. And so I think the way you get coaches to value it is to talk about it more like you're doing. I think it's providing those opportunities and making it something that you get evaluated on. Okay, you did this, this, and this, scoreboard outcome, all those things matter. And what have you done to get better at your craft? Like, show me some things that you've been actively trying. What's your development plan and what's the development plan for the players in the club? And making it so it's not punitive, but it's supported as a growth opportunity. And until we start to do those things, right now, the way you become a coach is hitching your wheel to somebody else who's good, hoping they recommend you to somebody else. And then hopefully you start to climb the ladder that way. Hmm. And so we've got to we've got to think about our systems piece and how do we how do we make that more valuable? Mark, what do you think about this? Because you've talked a lot about the uh, intra and interpersonal skills, the communication. Like, is is do you practice self care? Do you use some of the things that you? have learned about and understood about to take care of yourself as a coach? Over time, yes. Early career, no. Um, over time, yes. Some really practical strategies. Um, just give you an example. Uh, I was on vacation last week with my fiance and uh, we were out and, you know, I was actually happier when my phone had died for a few hours so I could be really, really present. <laughs> and I know that might seem something really straightforward, well, that's not feeling like I've got to rush back and charge it up. That's saying, well, this is a time where I'll, I'll deal with it in a few hours. I know it might seem straightforward, but the most um, effective one for me personally is exercise. And and that wasn't always the case. You know, I, when I first started coaching and stopped playing and lifestyle stress, you know, I, I gained some weight and, and I've managed to find a way to, to combat that by, uh, by exercising. And it just, it gives me some daily headspace and daily thinking time where all I'm doing is focusing on me and so, you know, whether that's a run, whether it's on the bike, whether it's something I prefer to do it in the mornings. Cause as the day goes on, it usually gets away from me, but that, that is the most important in terms of doing it in the moment, you know, maybe dealing with some of those stresses as you're coaching. Um, the use of a pause is, is probably one of the most effective things that I've found in that time. 
you know, some, mm. you know, just for me, I'm feeling some stress and things are built up. Practice isn't going the way I want it to go. I had a vision of something else, the use of a pause and a deep breath and how we can get a solution and, and thinking about some of those factors. Um, I hope, I hope I've provided a few there, Pete. They're, they're probably the ones for me that have been the most, um, the, the most impactful, I think. You have to find a way. I mean, I know it's simple, but I actually, I'm not a mega social media person, but it was a couple of years ago, I was really trying to, um, I was trying to network with different coaches. And I think to, to, to you know, Kristen touched on it before about that recommendation for coaches, usually to, to be effective in coaching. People always talk about how connected a coach is and I'm really connected. To be connected, you have to be on your phone. To be on your phone, you're not present where you are. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm, and, and I know yeah. that's the world that we live in now, but you have to find a way to have some time of, of being able to, to down tools and, and to be a person and go for a walk and go for a meal and have a conversation with your loved ones about the day and what's happened. And I think that's still something that I'm not perfect at and I have to get better at. And I'm, I'm lucky where I've got a very patient partner. Um, <laughs> but, but I really, I really need to make sure that I, I, I continue to do that because I, I, I'm a deep thinker and I overthink and, and, and sometimes it, it stays with me for, for a while, but yeah, hopefully there's some, some strategies there. Well, I think that, you know, the thing that you said there that was, that was key for me was that it's, just, it's, it's a work in progress because all of these things, like you, you, know, you, you mentioned that they're not that complicated things to do, are they? Get some exercise, uh, you know, take a walk, like put your phone down for five minutes. They're really simple things to do, but we're just not very good at them by nature. Right. So it, it is a work in progress and it is this continual, um, uh, I guess, movement towards those things that you value as a person, right? Um, you're never going to get it right 100% of the time, but being cognizant of that and understanding that that's what you're trying to get to means that you can kind of keep just noticing when you're not doing it, I suppose, which is, is where a lot of people fall down, I suppose. Absolutely. And you we guys have... actually... Sorry, Kristen, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, you go oh, ahead. Oh, I go was ahead. just going to say, you're really starting to hit on this question, with, especially with my younger coaches, Thinking about it, they'll often say, oh, I don't have time for that. I don't have time. I'm so busy. I don't have time. I, I Morning to night, I've got morning practices. And, and the question starts to become, is it time or is it priority? And how do you, if, if it's important, you've got to prioritize it. So you've got to sit down and really think about what's the value of it? What does it add back in? And so while half an hour, I can feel like I don't have time for it. What are the benefits of it? And it's that conversation that we have to help people have with themselves and with the way they use their time that really is an important piece to finding the prioritization of these things because time is a choice and how you spend your time is a choice and i'm sorry to jump in i'm glad you went first Kristen, because the point i was going to make is again you've articulated it better than myself as coaches we always talk to athletes about time management being on time being at the right place we're the first one to give that advice and you've got to be this you've got but but it comes to yourself sacrificing and I, I've done it. I, I, I still do a bit of it now. Look, you've got to do this, you've got it. But then when it comes to yourself, that, that does go out the priority. So it's, it's exactly what you've said. The coach needs to sometimes take their own advice to be able to, to do that and, and, and prioritize some of that self-care and that well-being. So we joke about that a lot here that some of our coaches at the collegiate level sleep in their offices. Mm. Right. And that, um, and that, you know, during season, they're the absentee parent and all of these things, which we've normalized and made okay. And it's 
really detrimental to the mental health of the coach. It hurts their support system, um, you know, male or female coach. It, it really is a problem. And so I think, again, there's a helping someone find a way to buck what is perceived to be, oh, this is just what it means to be a coach. Because it may not be the healthiest way to be a coach, which really then is maybe not the most effective way to be a coach. But I think this comes back to the systems that you were talking about earlier. Um, I, I think, I can't remember, I'm sure I've mentioned it on the podcast before. There's uh, a, a documentary uh, on Amazon, All or Nothing, where it follows an American football team for a whole season. And the first one was with the Arizona Cardinals. And the head coach at the time, Bruce Arians, made sure that staff brought their families to practice once a week. They had a family day where the dogs ran around on the pitch and the kids ran around on the pitch and stuff like that. Uh, field, sorry, American. That's okay, um, we know. And, um, we uh, can translate. Right, but then the, the, one of the later series was with the LA Rams. And that was where you saw coaches sleeping in their office. And there was one coach who went and saw his kids once every you know, three or four weeks or something like that. And that was exactly what you're talking about, normalized. And that systems approach, creating a system where you normalize that kind of behavior is, is deeply problematic, but it's possible to do it the other way. The other thing I was going to talk about was this idea of time uh, and just being creative with time. So like um, getting out for a walk, right? You don't need to spend half an hour, an hour going for a walk and looking at the trees. Like, and I said this to a group of coaches the other day, stick your head out the window for like two minutes and just breathe in the air. Just take a, take a massive deep breath and just notice what happens to your mind. Notice what happens to your body. All right. That takes 30 seconds. You can prioritize that, right? You can find two minutes to do that. You can find three minutes to do it the next time and so on and so forth. So it's being creative with this, this, this um, use of your time, I suppose. Um, Mark, I had a, a really specific question for you. This is a, a, a podcast about the psychology of the coach. And I'm aware that you're a team sport coach uh, and coaches from other different types of sports might be listening to this. But my, my really specific question was, like in basketball, you have, like you mentioned before about being on game 35 out of 50, okay? Uh, in the NBA, they play an 82-game season plus playoffs. Uh baseball i mean like what's that Kristen? 150 something games something like that there's like 150 timeouts a game right <laughs> there's pre-game there's halftime there's a million and one opportunities to to talk to your athletes i, I can't do the maths but over the course of a like 50 60 70 80 game season like how do you say effectively the same thing like thousands and thousands of times how do you repeat those messages being authentic without just going through the motions. What are your strategies for doing that? I think my beliefs and could be wrong, but I think there's a, in, in basketball and in a team sport, maybe other athletes, their athletes are generally creatures of habit. And, and again, this is the context of professionals, seniors. Okay. Um, they're, generally creatures of habit in terms of routine and structure and you want to try and get that consistency but you also don't want it to be mundane and repetitive exactly mm. what the question is so i i make no uh, i don't try and hide the fact how particularly in 
you know, I, I class the first six weeks when I'm with a group as about setting behaviours and standards, regardless of what you're doing. And, and that's my experience in, in, in basketball. Those first six weeks are key in that. So I, I will be really vocal about the fact how I'll be repeating a lot. And until I feel that baseline stuff's there, we're not moving on. I think when you get into that next phase of development, and I'm probably talking about really tactical, you know, kind of team development, I think that's when probably the art of the coach comes in with trying to hold the group accountable to the standards. So you've got some of that consistency and the same communication mixed in with then those next little details and those next steps. And it could be something as simple as, you know, maybe trying to take the athlete back to a, a, a reference point two, three weeks ago when they've done something well or they haven't done something well and they've shown that development, trying to make them think about where we're trying to go in two, three weeks' time, where we're trying to go at the end of the season. And, and Pete, the question is, is really relevant because I ask <laughs> me a lot. And if you speak to my players, my players would, would, um, they would absolutely joke with you that I am a bit of a broken record at times. Yeah. Because the things that I really articulate are the things that I will, I believe in more than anything in basketball. And I believe that brings success. I do. But I also feel that I, I try and stay on the pulse and say, actually, we need to develop a little bit further now. Um, and we need to kind of change that. So I think the, the coach has to be really observant. You know, they have to be really uh, observational and scan each situation. But I, I, I believe that that, that is that can be in a time it can be a body language thing in a timeout you, you know i've so on, on the same course that i referred to before you know the 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 technical art of coaching in a timeout was no more than two points so maybe a timeout's a minute long pete so maybe you exhale you take five to ten seconds for yourself as the coach you allow the players to get the breath sit down get some water get some towels i might then go with one offensive point one defensive point summarize so that might be the, the, and that was what I was taught on, on this course. Mm. I know for a fact, I've been in a timeout, made one point at one player for a minute. And I've done that purposefully because I felt at the right time, that's what I wanted to do. I've also been in a timeout and made three points generically for the team. But I think it's all contextual about where you are in the season and where you are with that group and where your development mm. phase is. So there's probably there's probably like a seesaw of, of of being repetitive, being consistent, wanting them to know the same message, but not to the point where it's becoming mundane and boring, uh, essentially. And I think that that's probably the art of it. So I don't think I've given you an answer on how I do it, other than <laughs> other than I'm aware of it, and it's probably sense and feel. I think I, I think I think you have given me an answer, yeah. and it comes back to that just being authentic. Yeah. being authentically you you kind of know what you want to get across and how you want to get across get how you want to get it across and delivering that with uh, authenticity so th i think you have given me an answer um i'm here with basketball coach mark stutel and psychologist dr Kristen diefenbach and we're talking about the psychology of the coach uh, Mark, I've, I've got a question for you. You talked a little bit about reflection earlier on, and I just wonder how how far removed would you say your coaching is now from when you first started? Um, you know, if you could give yourself some advice, what, what would that be? Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> 
but then that'd be false advice because I, I know that I wouldn't be able to. So right. um, that's a great question. I've said that a lot. Pete, you must be good at this because I've said great question and Kristen said <laughs> that, you must be good at this. Um, how far removed? I, I would like to think drastically. I would like to think drastically. I would also like to think I've still got a lot of the traits that, that I had when I first started because that's why I started coaching. It's how I fell in love with it. So I'd like to think a lot of the, yeah, the traits are still there. I'd like to think the application and I guess the, the, the skills and the tools in my toolbox as such are, you know, I can use them and implement them more effectively now. Um, I think that obviously, you know, your knowledge of the sport, and we, I know we've touched on it a little bit before, but the tactical side of it and the technical side of the sport, I think, has developed. and. I, you know, I don't think there's any, um, so long as, as you reflect in the right way, I don't think the most effective way of learning for me is through experience. And, and I think that, you know, I, I've absolutely, I know I have, I've, I've valued every learning opportunity I've had, you know, and I, I've understood that where I've been really fortunate. I've, Pete, you know, I'm 38 and I'm British and I've coached my national team. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that will stay with me for, for, forever. And, I, and I've made a ton of mistakes, by the way. A ton of mistakes, but I've also, you know, hopefully impacted some 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 positives as well. Um, so yeah, I think I, I would like to say if you went back and watched me coach then, and you watch me coach now, I'd like to say that you're still seeing the same person. But I would say hopefully the art and the implementation side of it is is more effective now than it was back then. It's like a fine wine. Exactly that, and that's because you're looking at my grey hairs on the camera. But- <laughs> Yeah, refined with age. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Kristen, for for young psychologists, because we have a lot of trainee psychs listen to to this podcast. For for young psychologists, psychologists in training, what would be your advice on how to work most effectively with this population with coaches? That's kind of a big question. It's probably kind of yeah. a lot, but if you could kind of just break it down into a couple of things that you would prioritize. Yeah. I think the first and foremost is to really examine, you know, where you're coming to as you come into the the sport equation. Because often, from a sports psych or a sports psych consultant or coach developer perspective, we come in with the same sort of expectations that the early athlete to coach transition person is bringing with them, and that is their sole experience or their minimal experience they have is from the athlete experience side, and so they don't really yet fully understand the complexity of the coaching job, the same way that students often don't really know what teachers are doing beyond what they see them do at the front of the classroom. <laughs> and so they don't know all the, the complexities of the jobs and the experience and all of this. And so I'd really recommend spending some time thinking about the coach as a separate entity, not just a conduit to get to the team and not just a, well, I just need the coach to get on board with what I'm doing because I'm trying to work with the team. And thinking about that much more complex relationship, thinking about working with the coach directly as a support in their world and the work that they're doing. And I, that's something I've been talking about in the field for a while is we're there from a sport performance perspective to support the whole system. And the coach is a person in their own right in that system, not just something that influences the athlete's world. And so there's a lot of really rich opportunities in coach development, coach education, two separate parts of the spectrum um, and collaborative approaches that I think, you know, if we recognize the 
seniority and the experience and the value of what that professional is bringing to the field as a another peer that we'd be working with, there's there's a ton of opportunity that I think we've not yet tapped as a profession and as a field. Yeah, I think that's a, a really awesome piece of advice. Um, Mark, for you, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to work with psychologists as as part of your kind of coaching experience, but same question for you, really. What what would be your advice on how a young psychologist might be able to uh, be more effective working with the coach, working with the team? Yeah, um, I've probably worked with, well, I have worked with, um, you know, probably a handful of sports psychologists and somewhere their work has been effective and somewhere it hasn't. And I'm not talking about the sports psychologist as a person uh, and I'm not blaming the sports psychologist where it hasn't been effective because I think it is a, like a multidisciplinary approach. But Mm -hmm. again, I think my learnings from that are, you, you know, the old adage is that players don't know, players don't care how much you know until they know that you care. I think at times where you know sports psychologist has, has, has been brought into the group and it's uh let's say maybe straight into a classroom based session and it's his imagery his regulation his and it's I, I yeah. don't know and you see the eyes going around the room from the players and you just they haven't put the miles in to build a relationship you know or the coach has been the barrier to allowing that person to do that because mm-hmm. If you went, you know, that last question, Pete, if you went back to me 15 years ago, yeah, that's that's fluffy and that's nice to have, but it's not taken away from what I'm doing with them on the floor, Pete. And you and Kristin can leave me alone because it's more important what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been my approach 15 years ago. And I think it's, it's, it's probably at times, particularly for a sports psychologist at the start of their career, you have to manage upwards. That's a, you know, mm-hmm. you, have, you have to find a way to, to get the coach's trust to to show the value that, and the impact that you can have and it, and that might be showing up to practice in my sport in basketball and saying coach can I help out can I can I rebound is it okay if I rebound at the start of practice and I, and I know that might not be possible in everyone's situation but I think that that's the way how as a coach I started by that mm-hmm. foot in the door trying to do the little things and I think sometimes not not everybody and I'm I, I'm not trying to be damning to sports psychologists here but I'd say it's the same with a physio and a strength and conditioning coach. It's, I want to do a strength and conditioning placement. Let me go and do a placement. I want to do a psychology internship. Let me come and do an internship. Doesn't doesn't work that way. You, you, you have to put the miles in and gain the trust to then start seeing the value. And I think hopefully there's a lot of coaches now who are more on board with preventative as opposed to reactive. Mm-hmm. I'm one of those coaches. But I think, you know, you might get a different coach at a different stage in their career where it's, oh, you're struggling, go and see the psychologist. Well, yeah. You know, ho- hopefully those, you know, the England football team with what Gareth Southgate did previously with the, you know, the sports psychologist leading sessions in the pool and doing these teams that, you know, things like that that are really engaging. So it's probably a two-way street, but, but specifically for the psychologist, you have to put the miles in, you have to show where you can add value and you have to gain trust. And if you do that, I think, you know, that, that, that's, that's probably the way of um, making a real impact. Mark, you hit on something there that's actually a big rub for me with our field that, that I push back on with our students all of the time, is that there's a hubris and an arrogance that comes sometimes when somebody goes, I've got all this great knowledge I've learned, and you must not know it, so I've got to give it to you. I have it. So, 
and they haven't done their homework. They don't sit down and take a look at what does this group really know and what do they need? And and we are 30 years past sitting down and having goal setting talks with teams. And in my opinion, for the most part, yep. you know, it, it's now a part of the conversation and the lexicon of sport and to assume that you are bringing in the best thing since sliced bread is means you probably haven't really thought through what you are doing as a professional. You always start with a needs assessment and you always start with relationship building. And the thing that kills me the most about that is as our field has evolved and, and Pete, you can shut me down if I'm going to step on too many professional <laughs> toes here. But as we've moved away from a teaching base and an education base of the field and really gotten into the psych, the irony is the psych and counseling side talks a ton. It's the foundation of setting any consulting relationship. You got to build a relationship of trust and you've got to understand where the client is coming from before you say anything. Yep. And yet in the sport realm, we're still going in with the arrogance of they need us. They're performing just fine without us. They might <laughs> perform better if we helped, but they don't need us. I mean, that's the reality. It's it's going okay. So I, I think that yeah, I probably probably put me on the hit list of some from psych board or something somewhere, but <laughs> important conversation and I'm not afraid to say it. So No, absolutely. It is an important conversation. On the on the flip side, Mark, and you, you alluded to this a little bit uh, in your answer to the previous question. How can coaches make good use how can they more effectively work with a sports psychologist um be open to learning i think um we're, we're not the fountain of all knowledge whilst we think we are um i include me in the we here by the way like i do it <laughs> so this is this is me probably you know reflection and talking from some of the mistakes that i've made um yeah, you know, I would say encourage coaches to engage in it with a purpose. So if if we know that our we're working with a with a development team, a youth team, and it can be something specific as communication, you, you know, something along those lines of how can we get our group to communicate more effectively? I've tried this, I've tried that. Well, the flip side of the point that Kristen just made is there are people out there that have studied and trained and and got experience. And I've got a different lens and they don't need to be sport specific necessarily. You know, they can apply there. So I just think, I think probably, um, yeah, be open, but, but be really specific with what you need. And, you know, as coaches, we, we don't know everything. And I think the more comfortable coaches get in their own skin, which is usually based on experience, pro probably lend itself to kind of engaging more with sports psychology. I asked you both a loaded question before about you know the the coach development systems, and I don't want to I don't want to segue back to that. But the point I asked that question is you know looking at uh, basketball development systems in Canada and some other places, you know they have to demonstrate a certain amount of CPD yearly to retain their license. And you know my I could be wrong here. This is only for you know secondhand conversations with coaches in Canada. But my understanding is there that there's a range of different development opportunities there, you know, some be it psychological, technical. So I think these things where you don't want to have it done to you, but we also want the gatekeepers to be able to facilitate those things. Because when something's done to you, you've got the barrier up when it's done with and you're on that journey. Um, so for me, I think the way that 
you know any any coaching um story that you see any positive success any any time that you're observing another coach and you're saying they're really effective for me it comes from a interpersonal standpoint and the skills it takes to build that so you know whether that is knowing how to teach somebody how to shoot a basketball or how to kick a ball or how to you know play america whatever it may be the person side of it is everything and you know whether that's bordering on sociology or psychology that's probably a different different podcast but i think <laughs> i just think we don't know everything as coaches be open to learning and and be really specific on what it is that you're trying to that you're trying to find Kristen, same question and and I suspect you might come at it from a slightly different angle because, again, you know, work is on coach development and, you know, you've done some work with Joran, who you mentioned earlier, and myself on sort of self-awareness and coach well-being. You know, how can coaches more effectively embrace sports psychology? I actually don't know that I'd come from a too, too much of a different approach because I think it's that's that stopping and really thinking about what am I doing and how am I doing it? And how do I intentionally improve? I mean, I, I'm going to get more drills. I'm going to talk to people about the plays they're running. I'm going to talk to them about new strategies for, you know, a strength program, but really taking the time to think about how, how do I build relationships? How do I uh, work with, and make sure, you know, how do I, and when do I do my reflection? How do I do my gut checks to my values and what I believe in? And am I walking the walk and talking the talk? that align with who I want to be and what I want to accomplish and really prioritizing that. And that part of that will be bringing in this other side of sport beyond the actual drills. And the one thing I would also want to just remind coaches is that these aren't mutually exclusive things. I mean, it's, it's not that it has to be in the classroom and on the court. This is about an integrated approach to developing other people and it should be embodied in everything you're doing. So it's a part of the drills you're doing. It's a part of the constant conversation. Mark has embodied that really well today as he's been talking about these different things. And it does mean it's more complex and it does mean it's layered, but the expectation isn't that every layer is in place the first day you hit the job. It's every year you get better, what's another layer that you're adding to the complexity of what you're doing so that the wisdom is a product of time and knowledge and self you know, self awareness. And so allowing yourself the grace to grow that intentionally. We talk about it with athletes all the time. Deliberate practice. How do you bring that into your work as a coach? I'm here with basketball coach, Dr. I wish I was. You've been elevated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm here with basketball coach Mark Stutel and psychologist Dr. Kristen Diefenbach, and we have explored the psychology of the coach. Um, what are your thoughts on coaching? Uh, what are your experiences of coaching? Leave us a comment on the website, 80percentmental.com, uh, or you can tweet us at EPM Podcast or find us on Instagram at 80percentmental. Um, I've got one last question for both of you before we finish. Um, who am I going to come to first? I'm going to go to Kristen first because I want to give Mark time to think about what the right answer is. Um, Kristen, who's the best coach? Who's the best coach? Yeah, and and why? Yeah, see, I'm an academic and I can't answer that. I'm going to say it depends. 
That's that's our stock answer. It's on my <laughs> diploma. It's what I'm allowed to say by the credentials that I got, right? No, I think the best coach is the one who is right age, right stage, that knows what they're doing in this space intentionally, and that's striving to be the, the best person that they can be in that position. I, I can't I can't put that on any one person. I think it's an embodiment. That's such a psychologist answer. I know. I'm so sorry, <laughs> but I can't. And if I did it, I think I'd probably get zapped. If I did <laughs> All right, Mark, you got to give me something. Who, who's the best coach, in your opinion, the best coach that you've come across, seen, heard? Uh, and, and again, w- why would that be? Okay. Um, can, I, can I give a couple? <laughs> Yeah, no, I suppose. No, you know, do what you want. I, I saw, I heard it in your voice, then, mate. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's different. So, I, I, I watched a coach called Yanez Dravec. I mentioned him before. Who, who um, he, he's probably impacted. If, if you went uh, coaches in Europe in terms of teaching the game to to the youth, it, he was just an incredible teacher of basketball. Now, don't get me wrong; he coached Yugoslavia, Drazen Petrovic. Um, uh, Tony Kukoc, uh, Vladi Divac. So he's coached all of the, uh, and being able to watch him on the floor teaching, and 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 that element of teaching, I, I was blown away. I just he was he he was awesome as a teacher. Um, I've, I've been fortunate to coach against um, uh, Tudis, who is the Greek national team coach at the minute, who I you know coaches Cieska Mesko, and I just think he is incredible. Um, I like to watch Steve Kerr from a distance and I just think um, the way in which he um, not only coaches basketball and communicates and relationships and I know probably everyone's seen the little snippets and sound bites where he's flipped the tactics board over and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, he's allowed coaches to take ownership. Bear in mind that I think they were winning by a heavy margin in the game. But I think, you know, I think that he he looks really... um, you know, I would say a player-centered coach. I also think he's a coach who um, has a, a moral compass and is a, is a voice for a lot of injustice and some challenges that are going on in the world. And, and I think mm. that's really uh, admirable. And it's something that, you know, I think coaches should should be able to do and feel more confident about if asked those types of questions. Um, but he, he's definitely a basketball coach that I admire. And the last one I'm going to throw at you, Pete, for me is, is Jurgen Klopp. And, and you know that... Uh, I have to because that that's my roots. But I just when you, it's amazing. I you know for me because I'm biased. Basketball coaching is the most complex in the world. That's because I'm biased. Okay, <laughs> so, and and if I've offended anyone else listening, feel free to have some dialogue with me on Twitter. Um, but I do I do feel that basketball coaching is so complex. Now, of course, any other coach will tell you the same. But in football, I think you, the way in which you see how he communicates, how he defends his players. I don't know if you saw uh, little things that um, Liverpool beat Chelsea in the FA Cup final in the penalty shootout last year. And I saw a thread that a psychologist had put together from it. So it's it's something that I'd, I'd kind of nicked from them. Mm-hmm. But the two different approaches in the teams, like the Liverpool team had practised it where the goalkeeper picked the ball up after every penalty wipe the ball off, went and give it to the next penalty kick taker, give them a pat on the back. The Chelsea team didn't do that. So it was something that hadn't really been spoken about. The uh, When the match finished at extra time and it went into penalties, 
the Chelsea manager was writing down his penalty takers. Klopp had already done it. So his thing there was it, it was together. It was embraced. It was a few words of encouragement. The team were lined up together. Chelsea, were, and it might be these little things that nobody knows, but from a coaching mm -hmm. standpoint, they're the things that I observed. So outside of my own sport, it would have to be Jurgen Klopp. So basically, Kristen didn't give me an answer, and you give me about eight. So, so that's why we balanced out. Coach and psychologist working well together. I will tell you that you now have to have a podcast about which sport is more complex because I got a few ice hockey guys that I think we can have a great debate as to which sport is more complex to coach. And having spent two years on the bench coaching even just youth hockey recently, it gave me a huge run for my money in terms of thinking fast and, and keeping everything going. So that would be the next podcast. Well, we did have one last series on uh, which is the greatest sports movie of all time. So, so which is the uh, most complex sport might be a good one, actually. Be fun. Um, look, I've really genuinely enjoyed this podcast. I think it's my favorite one so far. I definitely don't say that every episode, honestly. Um, but it's been a, a really fascinating discussion for me on the psychology of the coach. We've talked about uh, different psychological skills that coaches might use both with their athletes and for themselves. We talked about this idea of deep self-reflection and vulnerability being so important and the intra and interpersonal skills that coaches might uh, might work on and, uh, and develop. Um, all that's left really is for me to thank uh, my two guests. You've been absolutely wonderful. Um, first of all, Mark Stutel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pete, thanks. And Kristen, thank you both. I've really really enjoyed it so thank, thank you very much for, for share, sharing this time and space and yeah really appreciate it thank you both no problem Mark if people want to get in touch with you how could they how can they do that Pete you've pronounced my surname better than I have so I might I might pass it back over. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one I'm on I'm on Twitter at Stutel10 so S-T-E-U-T-E-L and then the number 10 cool that's awesome we'll uh, we'll put all your details in the episode description as well so people can find you if they if they want to if they want to challenge you on who's the greatest coach of all time uh kristen diefenbach dr kristen diefenbach i must not mistitle people uh thank you so much for giving up your time i know you're fresh back from sweden um so i really appreciate you taking some time out to to, to chat to us um so thank you for coming on the podcast no thank you for inviting me and it's always um it's always an amazing opportunity to talk about something you're passionate with with folks like you and Mark who just bring so much to the table and to be able to look at things from different perspectives. You know, I, I don't, you guys can't see this as you're listening, but I've been taking mad notes. So I look forward to sort of reflecting myself on what we talked about today. And I appreciate everything you guys brought up. And Kristen, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, probably the easiest way is through the West Virginia University in the U.S., our website, our email, or the, um, the department. I'm in the College of Applied Human Science in the School of Sports Sciences, or on Twitter at Dr. D Coach Science. Okay, awesome. And again, we'll put all those details in the episode description for people if they want to want to find you and reach out. So thank you both so much. Um, I hope that you, listeners, uh, yeah, you lot, have enjoyed what you've heard today. Um if you have a comment or a thought or a question, please feel free to uh, comment via the website, 80percentmental.com, where you can listen and subscribe to this and all of our other episodes as well from seasons one and two, uh, series one and two, if you're in the UK, because seasons is an American thing. doesn't make sense. Um, or you can 
tweet us at EPM podcast or find us on Instagram at 80% mental. Uh, I really hope that you've learned something and taken something from today's episode. Uh, and I will see you next time. Well, I won't see you because it's a podcast. Thank you.